Hey everyone, I am in Birmingham, Alabama today. Actually, I'm probably in the air right now, winging my way back to Ontario Airport. And so I'm just, didn't want to cancel our class because we missed last week because it was Easter. So I hope that the video is okay and we could still press forward. We're starting a new series called uh, Big Questions. Non-believers ask us for the next six weeks. This is a great time to maybe invite a friend to the class. Nice, nice short series so that they can um, come check out the class and see what we're about. Um, right now, before we get started, I want to bring your attention to a couple things. Um, one is my associates uh, will be passing out some handouts from our old friend Jim Mosley. Um, I meant to give these to you last time when we were talking about the alleged contradictions in the resurrection, and I forgot to do it. So I asked Jim if he would be so kind as to share his handouts with us on his work on reconciling the gospel narratives as it pertains to the events of Holy Week, including the resurrection. So um, one of my associates, one of my lovely family members will be passing this out right now. It's a it's a few pages long, so you can just slip that in your notebook. Also, he gave us a map of the events of Resurrection Sunday, so that will be coming around for you. Now, he did send um, more maps of the entire Holy Week. I didn't make all of those handouts, but if you would like those handouts, you can just go to the class website, which is Foundations Bible Class. That's all one word, Foundations Bible Class dot blogspot.com and you can download both of those documents as pdfs and and the whole thing there so super grateful to our friend jim for providing those uh, additional resources for us okay today we're going to be talking about our first big question that unbelievers ask in our series and so we've also got some handouts coming around to you just a little packet of a few pages so you should be getting that right now so you can follow along um, in our conversation. Now, the big question we're talking about today is why are there so many churches? This is a big question that many non-Christians have, including our LDS friends, our Muslim friends, and many people who have maybe been in a church before but have lapsed in their faith, or people who have never grown up in the church. I mean, just drive around Glendora and start noticing all the diversity of the types of places to worship just near us. I mean, it really is pretty staggering. Uh, you know, if, if I was here in class, maybe we would start naming off a few. If you want to do that right now, you could do it right to the screen. But, you know, there's the Friends Church, there's the Catholic Church, there's the Orthodox Church, there's a Greek Orthodox, Coptic Orthodox, there's the Syriac Orthodox up across uh, Corner Bakery, um, there's the Presbyterians and the Methodists and the Lutherans. We have a wide variety of churches just here uh, in probably a five-mile radius of us. And so when we think about this question, this is not a, um, a, a small question or a trivial question. This is a point of confusion for many people in our oikos. And so I want to try to address this today um, and 
help you think about this question a little bit so that you can engage with people in your Oikos about this issue. So if you remember way back at the beginning of the year, I gave you some handouts about statements of faith. We talked about the Apostles Creed. We talked about the Nicene Creed. So if you want to go back and look at those real quick, um, you can turn there. But what I want you to see is this statement in the Nicene Creed of, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. This is a very important statement. And um, when we're talking about what does it mean to be a Christian, these little creed statements are nice little summaries of what it means to be a Christian. And part of what it means to be a Christian is that we are part of one body of Christ. The problem is when I drive around Glendora, we don't look very unified. But this is a core belief of what it means to be a Christian. So how do we begin to reconcile that? Well, I want to think about this, this issue or this, this question in three streams of Christianity, okay? So I have kind of broken down all of these different branches and movements of Christianity. They kind of fall under three one of three umbrellas, okay? So first there's ancient faith. When we think about ancient faith, we're talking about the Orthodox, we're talking about Roman Catholic, and I'm also gonna throw Anglicans in here because really the missionaries made it all the way to England, the very edge of the Roman Empire, uh, very early. And um, so I'm including Anglican in there, even though technically the Anglican or the Church of England Church, as, as we're going to look at in a few minutes, didn't come into existence until much later. Really, there were Christians there very early. So I'm calling, we can maybe call them British Christians or whatever you want to call them. But the gospel made it all the way to the edge of the Roman Empire. And these Christians were part of the whole movement of Christianity. So that's what I'm calling ancient faith, okay? The second big branch of Christianity are the evangelicals. And that's what we are. These are often Baptists, uh, maybe evangelical free. You know, there's a lot of different kind of Baptists. So that's a huge umbrella even by itself. Uh, evangelical free. Uh, these, are, these are churches more in our stream of Christianity, evangelical. And then a third umbrella is we're going to call this, um, actually, we're going to call this Pentecostal and Charismatic together. So you can add that to the notes. It says Pentecostal, but really it should be Pentecostal slash Charismatic. And this is Assembly of God, Vineyard, Foursquare, um, Bethel. International House of Prayer, all of those would be under that umbrella. So I want you to think about this issue in those three broad categories. So when we think about the question of uh, different churches, a good place to start is to figure out, okay, which of these buckets does this church go in? It's going to be one of those three. Okay, so this is kind of an outline of what we're going to look at today. All right, let's first look at ancient faith churches a little bit more closely. Now, the, obviously the most ancient churches were the churches established in the book of Acts and the, and the era of the apostles. And so we're going to look at 
um, in this slide here of Acts through 1054. And this is what I'm calling ancient faith. And during this time, the church was one. There was just east and west, okay? So here we have a map on this slide uh, looking at these two uh, geographical places of the church, if you will. So on one side, we have the Eastern Church, and on the other side, we have the Western Church. And you can see that here, you know, the, the Eastern Church is in this more uh, tan or orange, and the Western Church is in this more red or pink shade. And you can see that here. And, um, but they were still all one. They were considered one church. Now, if you remember, we've looked a few times at the prominent cities of the ancient church. You know, there was Jerusalem and, and Antioch, and there was Alexandria down in northern Egypt, and, and there was Constantinople. And finally, there was Rome. Well, if you notice that Rome was the only city in the West, and what happened over time is that, that in the beginning, all the bishops were considered the same and of equal authority and equal power. But over time, the bishops in, in the West, in Rome, started to say, look, we are associated with Peter. And Peter was preeminent among the apostles. And so therefore, we think Rome ought to be preeminent among the other cities. Well, the bishops in the East said, whoa, 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 we've never done it that way before. We've always been co-equal with one another. There's been no idea of, of one bishop being over another. Well, over time, this, this dispute did not get resolved. And so what happens in 1054 is that the Western Church splits off from the East, and they make their bishop, they call him Pope or Father, and he is preeminent among all of the other bishops. Now, this was a distinctive break-off that the, happened in the West, and this is where we get Roman Catholicism. There is a sense in which Roman Catholicism is the first kind of break off or the first splinter group, if you will, to try to separate itself from the church. And so when they split with the Eastern or what we call today the Orthodox Church, um, then we suddenly had Christianity in two pieces. We had the Eastern or Orthodox Church and the Western or the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, so if we look at this timeline, this is another way of expressing the same idea. We can see this line at the bottom here of going from, from here all the way across. And this is to show the, holy, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. But then when we get up here, we can see that the, the West splits off in this direction. Now, let's look at this map here. I have many ways of trying to ex explain and ex express this idea. So next we have this map to look at of Europe. Now we have to understand that Europe is in the West. So Europe, prior to the Reformation, is predominantly Roman Catholic because it is in the West. So we see here on this, this map that these sections that are kind of this orangish color at the top, we've got Portugal and Spain down here, 
and um, up into France and Switzerland and Italy. These all stayed Roman Catholic even after the Reformation. But, but because Catholicism became, was in the West and it was the Western Church, that's why Catholicism is dominant in Europe until the Reformation. So Catholicism covered Europe. And uh, Spain, France, Belgium are still at Italy. I would probably add that to the notes. Um, are still dominated to this day by Roman Catholicism. Now, that's not to say there's no Protestants there. There are some. But the dominant religion is that of Roman Catholicism. Now, let's shift gears here to the evangelical uh, umbrella. And this is also the beginning of Protestantism. And you have to love Protestantism because the word protest is right in our title. It's right in our name, right? And evangelicalism or Protestantism is born out of our protest. And so we're going to find out what that protest is. So we get to 1517 and we get to a man named Martin Luther. Now, Martin Luther was obviously, he was in Germany. So what was he? He was a Roman Catholic. That was the only game in town in the West. Okay. So Martin Luther is an Augustinian monk. And that means that he's in the order of the great Latin father, Augustine. And He's reading through the book of Romans, and he has a very troubled soul. He's deeply troubled by his sin. And he just wants to know, you know, are doing all of these, these rituals are not making me feel closer to God. They're not making me feel forgiven. And he, his soul was deeply troubled. And so his uh, mentor, his father confessor, tells him, Martin Luther, what you really need to do is start reading through the book of Romans, reading through the book of Galatians. So he does that. And he starts noticing certain inconsistencies between what the Bible is teaching him and some of the Roman Catholic Church practices. So what he does in this picture that you're going to see here is he, he nails a document to the door at Wittenberg. And it's the door of the church. Now, I love this dramatiz dramatization of Martin Luther doing this because you can see all these other notices up here on the door. This was very common then. If you wanted to debate something or you wanted to alert people to something, you went and you posted it on the, the door of the church so everyone would see it and everyone in the town would know about it. So there was nothing strange or odd when Martin Luther went and posted his 95 theses on the door of the church in his town. That was a normal thing to do. But what he was doing was he was calling for a debate. He wanted to debate whether these inconsistencies that he was seeing between the Bible and some church practices as to whether or not they ought to keep doing these church practices. Now, let's just be clear here that Martin Luther was not trying to break away from the Roman Catholic Church. He was trying to ask for a debate. All right. So he wanted in particular to reform a practice called indulgences, where money would be paid to the Pope 
and somehow the Pope could do things, could, I don't know, kind of pull some strings in the spirit realm and free people early from purgatory. Now, Martin Luther wanted to debate this practice of indulgences. And many things happened with Martin Luther. I would recommend watching an old movie about Martin Luther. It'll give you, if you're not familiar with his story, you can see that he even goes to Rome and he's trying to reconcile his conscience. He does everything imaginable to try to come into alignment with the, the faith and the practice of the Roman Catholic Church. But it didn't work. And eventually he gets thrown out. He gets excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the result of that excommunication becomes Protestantism. And in particular, it becomes Lutheranism. See, Luther wasn't trying to start his own church. So it's a very unfortunate name that the Lutherans get named after him. Rather, he was trying to reform what he saw as being uh, problems in the Roman Catholic Church. But then he was excommunicated against his will. So here we have this timeline again. We have the one holy Catholic apostolic church coming right here. And then we have the break off in the west of the Roman Catholic Church. And then we have another break off right here of the Lutherans. All right, the first Protestants. So it's very important to notice that Protestantism is sort of like a break off of a break off. You know, first we've got the Roman Catholic break off and then all of Protestantism breaks off from there. And I think that this is a very important point because um, there's a sense in which when the Roman Catholics left the one Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, and I'm trying to help you think about this in case you have any Orthodox friends in your oikos, you'll be able to kind of understand what they're saying when they say, well, we are the true church. We are the unbroken church back to the apostles. And what they're saying with that is that here they are. They see themselves as this bottom timeline that is unbroken back to the apostles, whereas they see Catholics as a break off of them and us as a break off of a break off of a break off, as you'll see. So that's what they mean when they say we are the true church. They're not trying to be arrogant or in your face about it. They, they really don't mean that. What, what they're really trying to do is make a historical point. And so try to understand their point from, from, from that point of view. Maybe that'll be a little tip that will help you as you interact with your Orthodox friends. Oh yes, we have our map here again. So Lutherans, I said this, are in Germany, right up here in this, this white area, and also up into Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. Uh, uh, Lutheranism went north, and all of those countries today are still dominated by the Lutheran church. Now, that's not to say that all of those Lutherans are devout. Um, these are state churches now, so they're kind of um, connected to the government. And people, if you live in that country, you have to pay a tax to the government, and it's a church tax. Regardless of whether you actually go to church ever or have done anything other than been baptized in the church. So it's a little different today. It's, it's very cultural. But in the beginning, when the gospel was going out and, and Lutheranism was spreading, uh, people were on fire for the Lord. And this is where uh, that went to, is, is up here into northern Europe. Now let's talk about the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists 
uh, come along in 1525. And another name for the Anabaptists are the radical reformers. Okay, so Lutheran, Luther is known as a reformer. And then the Anabaptists come along and they're known as radical reformers. They wanted even more reform than, than Luther. And um, they were called the, the part of the radical reformation because they believed in rebaptizing. Their distinctive feature was adult baptism and the rejection of infant baptism. Now, infant baptism as a practice is very foreign to us because uh, there's a sense in which we share some, some beliefs in common with the Anabaptists of adult baptism. In other words, you have to have a profession of faith. Even though we baptize children, we still require them to have a profession of faith. We have done away with infant baptism. But it's very important to understand that infant baptism is a very ancient practice, going way back in time. And there is large historical precedent for that. So it's not a situation where people started baptizing babies late in the game, really were the latecomers of doing um, adult or convert baptism. Now, these were churches where people saw themselves as restoring the book of Acts. This is a very important theme that I want you to understand, is that all of these churches believe that they are the true representation of the church in the book of Acts. It's a fascinating claim. My Orthodox friends think they represent the church in the book of Acts and how it has been from the beginning. My Catholic friends think the same. And when we start getting into Protestantism, there is this constant theme, this constant thread, this constant longing and yearning to go back to the book of Acts. And people are motivated to try to study these matters and to figure out what that true essence of a church is. And yet here we are, and we have all of these different explorations of different features of the church in the book of Acts. Now today, um, the, the, the kind of the great, great, great grandchildren of the Anabaptists are the Mennonites and the Amish. These are another, uh, they're often from uh, Germany or France, and they are uh, really the successors, that's the word I'm looking for, uh, for the Anabaptists. So now let's look at the Anglicans. They come along just a few years after the Anabaptists get started. We have the Anglicans in 1534. Now remember before I said the gospel had already gotten to the end of the earth, if you will, the end of the Roman Empire, and had reached Great Britain early on in the church's history. But here is where the Church of England really becomes codified and formed. And this is called the Anglicans. And these are Protestants who live in England. Remember, Lutherans are Protestants who live in Germany, Norway, Sweden, that area. Well, these are Protestants who live in England. Now, if you read a history book, they're going to tell you that the start of Anglicanism was with Henry VIII. Henry VIII was a king in England, and he wanted a divorce from his wife. But the Pope wouldn't give him a divorce. And so he said, fooey on you, I'm going to start my own church. Here we are, the Church of England, and I'm the head of it. Put a crown on my head, and here I am. Now, 
Uh, that's sort of true. There's, there is some truth to that, that story. But this is why I belabored the point at the beginning, that, that, that the gospel had already reached England. Henry VIII is, is maybe the start of the formal Church of England. That's probably true. But, the, but there were Christians already there, and they were already part of the ancient faith church. And so I just want to kind of bring that as a point of clarity, because that is a very common misperception that the church in England began with Henry VIII. Well, yes and no. Okay, then if you've ever heard of the term Puritans before, right? Puritans figure into our history as Americans. And Puritans attempted to purify the church from Catholicism. And this is what Anglicanism really saw itself as, is a purity movement. Again, this feature of trying to go back to the book of Acts, trying to find this quest to find the pure, the true church, if you will. Now, in America, we call Anglicans Episcopalians. Now, these days, Episcopalians is almost synonymous with liberal. But once upon a time, Episcopalian simply meant American Anglican or American Puritan. And the Puritans um, have a wonderful history. If you ever get a chance to read some of the Puritan writers and from the 1700s and the 1600s, this can be, uh, uh, there, there's just lovely writings and, and very beneficial to your soul. And I would highly recommend some of their their reflections and their meditations, if you would like to check that out. But these days, Episcopalians are fairly theologically liberal. And, um, but if you go to a church that has Anglican in the title, those tend to be more evangelical churches. They tend to be more gospel-oriented and more theologically conservative. Now, for me, myself, I have a lot of, um, I don't know, kind of sympathy for Anglicanism. I like a lot of features of Anglican worship. I like aspects of the liturgy. I like a more formal worship, but it's not as formal as my friends in the Orthodox Church, but it's still ancient faith. Uh, my friend who's an Anglican calls it Catholic light, uh, but it's sort of evangelical orthodoxy is what I like to call it. But I like Anglicanism. I think that there's a lot of good there. Some famous Anglicans, C.S. Lewis is probably the most famous Anglican. Um, and many fine Anglican scholars today, N.T. Wright, um, John Lennox is a friend of the ministry that I work for. He's a great mathematician and scientist. Many, many famous Anglicans has a rich intellectual uh, tradition. I like Anglicanism a lot. If I wasn't a Baptist, I'd probably be an Anglican. Okay, now let's look at our timeline one more time. Again, we have the one Holy Catholic Apostolic Church. We have a break off of the Roman Catholic Church. We talked about Lutheranism. And now we've got another break off of the Church of England or Anglicanism. Now, here is really quick. The Church of England is right up here in this pink island area. And that is what we're talking about. So I want you to get a feel for these things historically in a timeline, as well as geography, because geography is a critical part of the Reformation. That's why I'm showing you these maps. Okay, now let's talk about John Calvin. John Calvin comes along 
right about the same time as Anglicanism. And I put this year here, I believe this is the year that he first published his famous book called The Institutes of Christian Religion. And John Calvin, he is a kind of a second generation reformer after Luther. And he comes along and he's a French reformer. And so uh, if you've ever heard of the term the Huguenots, the Huguenots are French Protestants, okay? And this is where we get the churches. Um, in Scotland, we get Presbyterians. See, Presbyterians are really just um, Scottish Protestants. That's what they are. And these churches can, can include um, the Presbyterian Church in America or the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Those are two um, examples of conservative Presbyterians. Now, liberal Presbyterians are called PCUSA. So if you're driving around Glendora and you see a sign that says PCUSA, those are liberal Presbyterians. Um, also the Reformed. The Reformed fall under the umbrella of John Calvin. But these are Dutch Reformed people, and these are my people. This is where I come from. My great-grandfather was a minister in the Dutch Reformed Church in Holland. And I don't know if he can hear me right now in heaven. I, sometimes I like to think that my grandfather and my great-grandfather are looking at me when I teach every week, and they're aware of what I'm doing, and they, they take great pride in the legacy that I still have. But, but my great-grandfather in the old country, as my grandfather will call it, would, was a preacher, a minister in the Dutch Reformed Church. And this is, so we have RCA, the Reformed Church in America, the uh, Christian Reformed Church, or the United Reformed Church. Uh, and some, what we might call neo-Calvinists, who are emerging in the last uh, 10 or 15 years or so. These are... Uh, younger guys who are not really affiliated with any of those official denominations, but they pattern themselves after the Reformed tradition. If you've ever heard of a preacher called Tim Keller in New York City, he is a neo-Calvinist. He is Reformed. If you've ever been on a website called the Gospel Coalition, that is a neo-Calvinist or neo-Reformed website that was started by Tim Keller. If you've ever heard of a minister called named Mark Driscoll, he used to have uh, a whole hub of churches and then he went through a scandal a couple of years ago, but he is a neo-Calvinist. He is a, a, a neo-reformed guy. Uh, R.C. Sproul, if you've ever heard of R.C. Sproul or his ministry, Ligonier Ministries, he is reformed. He is part of the Presbyterian Church in America, the great Scottish tradition. Okay, here's a map just to look at this. Scotland is right above England. It's way up here. And again, this is where the Presbyterians are. And then we also have the Reformed over here in the Netherlands or in Holland. There's another name for that. And those are the Reformed. Okay, now let's talk about the Baptists. All right, these are our people here at Grace Church of Glendora. In 1609, along come the Baptists. Now, their distinctive feature, much like the Anabaptists, is believers' baptism. And uh, they were also rebaptizers. So if somebody got 
baptized as an infant, if they converted to being a Baptist, then they got rebaptized as a convert. And uh, if you've ever uh, familiar with American history, uh, this the Baptists feature prominently in our history as Americans. These people were also called separatists, and these were the pilgrims who first came to America and were part of the founding of our country. And for them, uh, Puritanism or purifying the Anglican church was simply not enough. That was not enough of recapturing the book of Acts for them. That was not enough of a purification. That's why they're called separatists. They wanted to actually separate from the church in England and form their own church. And so, you know, here we are as Baptists, we are like the ultimate Protestants. You know, we didn't just protest Roman Catholicism, we're protesting the, the purification efforts and really uh, s forming our own splinter group, if you will. So Baptists are part of the founding of America. The first Baptist congregation in North America was founded by a man named Roger Williams. And it was, this is really where American revivalism comes out of the first great awakening and George Whitfield and, and these efforts and also to some extent, the second great awakening. Now, as you may know, there are many, many kinds of Baptists. I think I read once that there's like 60 something different kinds of Baptists. That wouldn't surprise me. Really, Baptists, I think, are among the largest version of Protestants, the largest incarnation of Protestants. And this is part of our stream and our history here at Grace Church. Now, let's move quickly on to the Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley. Now, Wesleyanism started in England. Uh, John Wesley was a priest in the Church of England. He was an Anglican priest. But he, again, wanted to try to get back to the book of Acts. And he really f had an interesting and amazing spiritual experience. And he wanted to cultivate more of a life of holiness. And so his followers at first were actually within the Church of England, and they were called the Holiness Mo Movement. And eventually they broke off and they became Wesleyans or Methodists. You may, may have heard of the Methodist Church um, or the Nazarene Church. These are all under the umbrella of uh, Methodist or Wesleyanism or the Holiness Movement. And this is an idea that is a theological idea of perfectionism, where one can do certain works and and get unction in their soul and have enough experiences and encounters with the Holy Spirit where they become perfect, even in this life before they go to heaven. Now, I know some of you are probably snickering about that, but um, this is not um, terribly unlike some ideas in the ancient church, in orthodoxy. And I, I am going to try to remember to come back to this point a little bit later. Now, Wesleyanism came to America. It didn't just stay in England. And this was really another critical factor in revivalism on the American frontier. And Wesleyanism gave birth to um, a lot of missionary efforts. 
many missionaries to the North American Indians and to other remote places were born out of Wesleyanism. These followers of Wesley, the holiness movement, really had a passion to begin to push out the gospel. Now, uh, here's a little fun fact, is that Wesleyanism is actually the um, tradition of origin of our nearby neighbor, Azusa Pacific University. Now, whether or not they're still, you know, clinging to that Wesleyan tradition is a different question today, but that is definitely its historical origin. Now, at the beginning, we said that there were three major streams of Christianity, three major movements. We talked about ancient faith, and we talked about the beginning of Protestantism, or what I'm calling evangelicalism. Now we're going to talk about the third movement, which is Pentecostalism. And Pentecostalism really starts at the beginning of the 20th century, at the Azusa Street Revival. Now, the Azusa Street Revival, many people think it's in Azusa, just couple miles from here. Azusa Street is in downtown Los Angeles, and our city, I think, was named after that street. But the Azusa Street Re Revival is really a break-off of Methodism, and now we start to see, like, we have break-offs of break-offs of break-offs, and, and that's where we are. Now, the real focus of uh, being a Pentecostal and the whole Azusa Street Revival is on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you can make a little update in your notes because I did this, I made, updated this slide after I printed out your notes. So you see the second point here is the focus on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that is really the, the key feature of what happens in the rise of Pentecostalism at the Azusa Street Revival. Now common churches you might see that are in this tradition are the Assembly of God and the Foursquare. The Foursquare was started by a woman named M. Amy Simple McPherson. And this isn't in your notes, but I think it's interesting that Wesleyanism and Pentecostalism tend to be those movements that from the beginning uh, were more friendly in their views of women. And including women is having a legitimate place in ministry. And things started to be based more on people's gifts and what has God gifted you and what has God called you to. And these traditions tend to, most of the time, be much more open to women in, in differing capacities than what had come before. Now, um, I don't know if I want to call it like a break-off, but another movement starts within Pentecostalism called Charismatics. Now, I asked a coworker today before I came to this taping, hey, here's a, here's a pop quiz for you. What's the difference between a charismatic and a Pentecostal? And she looked at me and she says, aren't those the same thing? And I said, no, I think they're a little different, but even I had to go look it up. So I'm gonna explain it to you right now. Pentecostalism is really the big umbrella term and that's what starts at the Azusa Street Revival. Charismatics come out of Pentecostalism and that was kind of in the 50s and the 60s. And there was this focus on spiritual gifts. And this is another little update for your notes. Um, this is really where speaking in tongues starts happening a lot. And uh, the spiritual gifts are seen in full operation. And there's a focus on supernatural miracles. Now, here is where it get, can get a little confusing, okay? So if you've been asleep up until now, kind of wake up a little bit because I'm going to explain a distinctive feature of, of being a charismatic. There is such a thing as being a Catholic charismatic or an Anglican charismatic. 
I don't know if, I'd have to ask my Orthodox friends if there's ever Orthodox Charismatics. I've never asked that. But there can be Charismatics who are within these other churches that we've already looked at. Because the key feature to them is the speaking in tongues and believing in the full operation of the gifts and supernatural miracles. So what happened in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s is that people who were in Catholicism started actually also being charismatics. And they started speaking in tongues. My friend, who is a, is a very fine theologian, at the, the place where I work, the Kenneth Samples, a guy whose book we've been reading this year, um, he came out of a home Bible study that was a Catholic charismatic Bible study. And that was how he found the Lord. And so charismatics don't, not all charismatics belong to a Pentecostal church. You can be a charismatic and be part of one of these other traditions. But charismatics really started taking flight in the late 60s with Chuck Smith and the Calvary Chapel movement and the Jesus movement. Now, many of you probably remember that. Maybe you even got saved during the Jesus movement. Maybe you got saved in the Calvary Chapel. But these are people who um, really began to take hold of the idea of, of what it means to be a charismatic. And then after that, in the 70s, we see the Vineyard and John Wimber and then in more recent years, um, I've added a slide here. You can go to the next one, is neo-charismatics. And this is another little correction that you can make to your notes. Neo-charismatics are what are coming out of the church Bethel in Redding, California, and IHOP, which is International House of Prayer. We've got a, a Azusa House of Prayer just down the street here. We've got Pasadena House of Prayer. Those are all... In, loosely interconnected, and these are what I call neo-charismatics. And their distinctive feature, they're, they're, another name for them is the New Apostolic Reformation. They're trying to start another reformation, more going back to the book of Acts. The church still needs more purification, more reformation. And they actually believe that the office of apostle and prophet are still in play. And I don't have time to explain what they mean by those terms, but uh, it's probably not what you think it is. And so maybe ask your neo-charismatic friend if you have one to explain that. Okay, that brings us up to the 80s and the 90s. My teenage and college years. This is where we see another new movement, another effort to go back to the book of Acts. And this is the rise of non-denominational churches. These are churches that really want to have no denominational affiliation. They don't want to be called Lutherans or Baptists or, or Methodists. They, they pick names like Elevate Church or Grace Church, that we took the Baptist name out of it to sound more ecumenical and non-denominational. These are the kinds of churches now that populate much of our landscape in America. And this was during the time of the rise of the seeker-sensitive model. And this is where we saw in the book of Acts, there's a focus on evangelism. The church should be about evangelism. So they began to restructure and rethink, how can we bring people into the church more? How can the church be more evangelism-focused? Two very prominent churches that gave birth to much of what we see today in non-denominationalism is Willow Creek and Saddleback. Willow Creek is Bill Hybels. In fact, if you went to go see Case for Christ, 
Last week, as part of your homework, you saw a depiction of Bill Hybels in that film. He featured prominently in the conversion of the main character, Lee Strobel, and that true part of the story. And you can see in the film, they're meeting in a movie theater. Who had ever heard of meeting in a movie theater, but that was more seeker friendly. Unbelievers didn't want to go to a formal church, but hey, I can invite you and you're going to come to a movie theater. Maybe I can get people to come. Saddleback, uh, Rick Warren, and that whole movement. And between those two churches have really given rise to the whole non-denominational movement and the idea of seeker-sensitive or seeker-friendly um, ways of being in the church. Now we're going to move into some analysis. What do we make of all of this divisiveness? Mostly what I've given to you is a history lesson. Really just tracing the history of the church from the book of Acts all the way to today. I would love it if you would take a minute to discuss and you know, if, if it seems okay and there's time, stop the tape for a minute and just discuss among yourselves this question. What are the potential downsides to being a Protestant for Protestant Christianity? What do we see as being some potential pitfalls in Protestantism? So I'm going to give you just a few seconds here to kind of think and discuss that question. So let's regroup a little bit. Hopefully you came up with something along these lines. Here's what I came up with, is Protestantism can be very individualistic. If we don't like a church, we just go down the street. We're just in constant looking for the one that meets our needs, that we like the best. They have the best children's program, or they have the best speaker, they have the, the pastor who tells the most entertaining jokes or whatever. But it has created an environment in America, especially where our, our faith has become very individualistic and really is largely based on little more than our personal preferences. Secondly, we see that the church can be very divisive. If people get mad and they get angry, they just leave the church. It's not about connection and relationship and, hey, we're all a family. Let's try to hang together and work out our problems. Protestantism as it's conceived currently in America, in, in America, can lead to a very divisive way of being. If I don't like something, I don't like that pastor, I don't like his sermons, I'm just going to leave. And we threaten each other, we threaten the leadership, and we are um, engaging in a lot of really divisive, angry, a lot of times, behavior. Third is there's a lack of accountability. If I don't like a church, I can just leave, I can go down the street, well, what if I've been abusive to my spouse or I've been involved in flagrant sin? I can just leave because we're all so disconnected. And that doesn't happen in ancient faith churches. Everybody knows each other. And if somebody leaves a church in one city and tries to go show up at that, you know, affiliated church in another city, people are going to know. It's like a big trailer park. Everybody knows each other's business and knows those priests are all talking to each other. And hey, you'll never guess who showed up at my church. Um, they don't have that problem as much in ancient faith traditions. Fourth is a disconnection from history. Many Protestants do not have an understanding of our connectedness, 
on our family tree, if you will. I like to think of ancient faith churches as like the trunk of the tree. They're really holding us up. They're providing the roots and the foundation of our faith historically. And Protestants are kind of like all these leaves and branches up at the top. And we need to understand our connection to ancient faith and that, that there is something about them that is part of us. And there's something about us that ought to be part of them. And we can build bridges rather than being in division with one another. So I think an appreciation for our historical connectedness is very vital and important to understanding our identity as Christians. And that things like the, the Nicene Creed aren't something to be thrown away, but rather they are an a very ancient expression of what it has meant for the last 2,000 years to be a Christian. I also want to talk about the importance of unity. Unity is not a trivial issue in Scripture. In fact, I've included three Scriptures here that talk about the importance of unity. If we were to look at John 17, in fact, if there's time, I want you to stop the tape right now and look up the reference from John 17, verses 20 to 23, and read those aloud, as well as 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 14. Now, as you can see in these verses, um, unity is very important to the Lord. He is not big into division. Now, are there some verses where it says, yes, sometimes we have to divide? Yes. But I think that Protestants are way too quick to divide a lot of the times. And we don't want to do the hard work of understanding, hey, we're a family and we're connected to each other. We're connected to each other through the Holy Spirit and through the work of Christ, as it says in 1 Corinthians 12. And that this is something we need to put some effort into. We need to put effort into keeping unity with each other. That ought to be an intention. That ought to be a goal that we, that we do and that we act in such a way as to promote unity with each other. Now, have you ever noticed how I teach in this class? Maybe you're starting to notice a pattern after this whole year that my personal focus in teaching a lot of the, the great doctrines that we've looked at this year have been focused on unity. What can we find that we have in common as Christians? That's why we've been reflecting on the Nicene Creed all year, is because I want you to see that there are a lot of things that unify us. The Trinity, the incarnation, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. This is how I teach. And I'm telling you now, I'm kind of pulling back the curtain a little bit to tell you why I teach this way. Because I think that Jesus wants us to put effort into unity. And this is how I teach the Bible, is what can we agree on? Finally, I want us to appreciate our diversity. This is very important. Each tradition has its own strengths and weaknesses. I want to encourage you to go out and find a friend who's a Nazarene, or a Wesleyan, or an Anglican, or a Coptic Christian, or a Roman Catholic because I actually think that in our diversity and in all of our efforts to try to go back to the book of Acts, we've all done that a little differently. And we've all focused on something a little different. And this is important. We need to understand something about the holiness movement. We need to understand something about liturgical movements. We need to understand something about Pentecostalism and even Neo-Pentecostalism, because all of those are expressions of the body of Christ. 
And I think that there is beauty in our diversity. And I hope that you're catching my um, vision for that and how I teach. Because I bring in stuff from all different kinds of traditions, all different branches of that, that family tree, if you will, because we're all one in Christ. And so we can not be afraid of our diversity. We don't have to put each other down. Rather, we can look for what we have in common and then what we can appreciate about each other in each of those traditions. We need each other. And we need to have love and kindness toward each other. Um, and it, I, yeah, again, I just want to encourage you to, to look for friends from other Christian traditions. I know that this has enriched and, and blessed my life. And I just want to close today by telling you a little story. Um, if you've ever heard of the Bible Answer Man, a man named Hank Hennegraaff, He's on the radio. He's been on the radio for, I think, probably over 20 years, probably 25 years now. And he took over for Walter Martin of the Christian Research Institute. And he's known as the Bible Answer Man. Well, a couple of weeks ago on Palm Sunday, he converted to orthodoxy. So his whole life, his, the trajectory of his life was, a, in, he grew up reformed. He's Dutch. So he grew up refor- reformed in the reformed church. Then he converted to kind of more of a Calvary Chapel type of thing, more of a charismatic flavor. And then a few weeks ago, he converted to orthodoxy. He's kind of been in all three branches of Christianity. And there has been a firestorm of backlash by evangelicals saying, he's not a Christian anymore. He went and joined another religion. And I've read posts from orthodox people say, ah, he's finally arrived at the right religion. He's finally arrived at the, the, the right branch of the family tree. And I want to encourage all Christians, whether you're ancient faith or evangelical or charismatic Pentecostal, that we all are on the same tree and we need to treat each other with kindness. We need to make efforts to Look for what unifies us first. Put effort into what unifies us first before we start talking about our differences. But even when we talk about our differences, try to appreciate what each strand of that tree brings to us and how it highlights a different part of our faith. We have many common beliefs. Everything in Christ that unifies us, as it says in Ephesians 4, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Unity is very important. We need to make more efforts to be unified and less efforts on splitting off from one another. Maybe we could just sort of curtail the protesting a little bit more and love each other and be kind toward each other a little bit more. Well, I hope that this has been helpful. Bob's going to wrap us up right now with a quick word of prayer at the end. And I want to thank you for your attention. And I will be back with you next week as we tackle another big question that unbelievers ask. Bye-bye.